This is Bob Ford of History, Mystery, and Lore, where we travel the Midwest, going to museums and historic sites, talking to experts and old friends who've got great stories to tell. Today, I'm going back to Kansas City, Missouri, in the 18th and Vine District to finish our conversation with Bob Kendrick, the president of the Negro League Baseball Museum. But before I get there, let me remind you of the importance of this museum. Throughout the post-Civil War era, the black man was struggling to survive, let alone lead a meaningful life. Stories of success and dreams of comfort were few and far between. But the God-given drive to better oneself propelled and sustained advancement. The black culture was rich with style, determination, and talent. Entertainers, athletes, and in particular baseball players gave society heroes that sparked people to strive and achieve. Let us go back to the museum that so well describes the struggle, the times, and the individual success stories that are foundational building blocks for this country. On to the Negro League Baseball Museum. This is Bob Ford of History, Mystery, and Lore. I come to you with round two of the Negro Baseball Museum in Kansas City at 18th and Vine with my friend... Bob Kendrick, president here at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Bob, thank you again for doing this. But uh, the last round we talked uh, about executives and really people that you've had personal relations with, but we didn't get to any of the players. <laughs> well, and we have to go to Satchel Page first, I guess. So Satchel was what a character he was. Tell me your favorite Satchel Page story. I think first and foremost, in my own estimation, Satchel Page is the greatest pitcher of all time. There may have been some who's who threw as hard as he did. There may have been some whose stuff was as good as his stuff was. But I don't know if there was anyone who was ever better than Satchel Page. And when you start to combine longevity, by his estimation, he pitched in over 2,600 games. Hmm. The great stuff. Recorded some 55 no-hitters and only God knows how many strikeouts. And the charisma. He mm -hmm. could sell it. Yeah, he could sell it, but he could back it up. And uh, Satchel, Satchel Page was essentially the Muhammad Ali of baseball before we ever knew who Muhammad Ali was. Interesting. And the thing that I love is that he named his pitches. So he didn't have fastball, curveball, changeup, no, not Satchel. Satchel had what he called his midnight creeper. He had the two-humper. He had the bat dodger. He had the hesitation pitch, the long tom, the short tom, the jump ball, the trouble ball, the radio ball, the wobbly ball, the dipsy doo. And he also had a pitch that he famously called his B-ball. You know why he called it the B-ball? I do not. Because Satchel says, it bees where I want it to be when I want it to be there. And I tell <laughs> all my young major league pitchers when they come into the museum, 
they need to go over and rub elbows with Satchel and they need to develop themselves a b-ball. He was so colorful. And I, even though I never got to meet him, he died in 1982. I was in Kansas City but I'm a student at Park College, now Park University. So I never got to meet him, but I felt like I knew him through all the stories that Buck O'Neill so oftentimes shared. And one of my favorite stories of many Satchel Page stories is that they were playing in the Denver Post tournament. Big tournament. It was a big time tournament. And so Satchel has a Satchel Page All-Stars enter the tournament and Buck O'Neill is playing first base for Satchel and his All-Stars. They're playing an all-white semi-pro team from the Coors Brewing Company. And so Buck says the first kid gets into the batter's box. He digs in. Satchel throws him a fastball. Kid swung as hard as he could. Topped it. Dribbled it down the third base line. It stays fair. He beats it out and gets an infield hit. Well, Buck says about that time, one of the other kids from the course dugout steps on top of the dugout steps. And he yells out, let's beat him. He ain't nothing but an overrated donkey. Well, Satchel was probably more offended by being called overrated than he was by being <laughs> called a donkey. And he looks over at first base and he says, of course, his nickname from Buck famously was Nancy. He said, Nancy, did you hear that? Buck said, yes, Satchel, I heard him. He said, Nancy, bring him in. And so Buck says he turns at first base and he motions for the outfield to take a couple of steps in. He said, Satchel looks over at first base. He said, Nancy, bring him all the way in. <laughs> Honest to God's truth, there were seven guys kneeling around the mound. Satchel Page and the catcher, and Satchel strikes out the side on nine straight pitches. He looks into the coolest dugout and says, Overrated. Overrated, dark in hell. <laughs> and, and of course, Buck said by then, the young kid that had said this, he was embarrassed, he was crying. All the guys came out to apologize to Satchel and his teammates. But Buck O'Neill swore to the day he died. If he had one game to win and any choice of any pitcher from any era, it would be the legendary Negro Leaguer Satchel Page. He said you might beat him when he was out there messing around, but when he was locked and loaded, forget about it. You're right. His longevity is what made him incredible. How about John Donaldson? Oh, John Donaldson, perhaps the greatest pitcher that most people have never heard of. Over 400 verifiable wins. Over 5,000 verifiable strikeouts. You know, for me, it is oftentimes the pundits will say when we talk about Negro Leagues, well, the, the, the statistics are not as readily available. And, and, they're, and they're not as readily available. They are there. But with a player like John Donaldson, you have all the statistics the John Donaldson Network has done a tremendous job of researching this one player and come up with all these box scores of all these incredible feats. He was one of the greatest pitchers this sport has ever seen, and no one really knows who the heck he is. 
And so when you start rolling out numbers of over 400 verifiable wins, over 5,000 strikeouts, con consecutive no-hitters, uh, ridiculous number of scoreless innings, then people want to pick apart the, the stats that you've now backed it up with and say, well, that was against lesser competition. Well, and he was awfully early. And he was early. That also comes back to hurt those guys because the Buck O'Neills, the Monty Irvins, the guys like that spoke so highly of their contemporaries. Mm -hmm. Donaldson is part of the early era of black baseball that crosses over to the formation of the Negro Leagues. And so you don't get as much oral account on those guys as you would with a Satchel or a Josh Gibson or a Cool Papa Bell. But, you know, even when you go out and dig up the statistics, you have those who still doubt the statistic that they just asked you to dig up. Yeah, they'll say, well, again, that was against lesser competition, you know. But, number one, he could only play who he could play. He never asked to be segregated. You know, he would have loved to be able to compete against the major leaguers, and I think he would have done the exact same thing against the major leaguers that he was doing against this competition that was outside the major leagues. When I look at Major League Baseball, I think of pre-World War II and post-World War II. Mm -hmm. Was there a similar look at World War I for black baseball? There, there certainly was because we've been playing baseball for a long time. Mm -hmm. This was not a new phenomenon for black folks playing baseball. As a matter of fact, there is early indication that even as enslaved people, we were playing some form of baseball. And, and we've been playing professional baseball for quite some time. Bud Fowler, who was inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame last year, along with Buck O'Neill and Minnie Minoso in terms of black baseball representation in the National Baseball Hall of Fame, is the first player from Cooperstown to be inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown. And Bud Fowler was a you know, 19th century guy uh, who was playing a lot of baseball and playing on white professional teams, could never stick and stay. Could never stick and stay, even though he was such an outstanding ball player, because he, you, know, you already know, and he knew, that the color of his skin was gonna be too much, to, would add too much weight for his opportunity to play. He was never going to be accepted by those who he wanted to participate and play this game with. And it's unfortunate because he was such a great ball player. And then he would later move into promoting the sport and help organize the great Page Fence Giants, one of the greatest barnstorming teams of all time. And uh, Moses Fleetwood Walker, who we recognize as the first known black to play on what would be considered a major league team. This goes back to about 1883. Moses Fleetwood Walker was a barehanded catcher. And, yeah, and it didn't last long before guys like Adrian Cap Anson and others mm -hmm. would form, quote-unquote, a gentleman's agreement that would ultimately ban black players from playing on white major league teams for the next 60 mm -hmm. years or so before Jackie Robinson would re-break mm -hmm. the color barrier. And we've now since found out that there was a guy named uh, William Edward White who played one game prior to Moses Fleetwood Walker in what would be considered a major league. And William Edward White, however, didn't know he was black. He thought he was white. 
and he was very fair skinned. <laughs> and he was the he identified with white culture because his father was white. But it was later identified that he was the byproduct of an affair that his father had with one of the slaves, thus making him black. And he plays one game, so it's a bit of an anomaly, but he does play one game, even before Moses Fleetwood Walker, and technically making him the first right. to play on what would be considered a major league team. And, and so you have all of these little side stories like that as it relates to the evolution of our game and the African-American participation in our game. And even when you walk through the museum, we bring the story of World War I to the forefront as you look at this, <clears throat> this highly decorated African-American soldier. And when you look at the medals that adorn his chest, they're all French medals because we were not allowed to fight with the U.S. troop. We fought with another regiment uh, in France. And I had the opportunity to walk retired General Russell R. Honore through the museum. And he shared something with me that I never really had given that much thought to, uh, just questioning the reason why we weren't allowed to fight with our own troop. And he surmised that the belief was if we fought with our own, then we would want equality. Yeah, what a novel idea that is. Yeah, the fact that you could assign me to go fight for another country against the same tyranny that we're all fighting collaboratively against, that won't make me want equality. But if I fight with my own, then I would want equal rights and the other things that we've all held true as we look at this country that all men are created equal, you know, under the Constitution and so forth. And so it, it was just an interesting thought process, you know, as we go back. But those conflicts that we, that African-Americans have valiantly participated in from the onset, going, and, and we've been able to trace Negro League's participation going back, or Black baseball participation going all the way back to the Spanish-American War, which means there's likelihood that there were black baseball players who participated in the Civil War. And so virtually every conflict that has taken place on this soil and abroad, there was some connection with black baseball, and certainly black folks have participated in that. And, and when Buck O'Neill, who served in World War II in the Navy, and I asked him, I said, well, Buck, why did you want to fight? And his answer was very succinct, but also very poignant, because we were American. And they were constantly trying to prove how American they were. And there's no greater proof than service to your country. What little steps, what slow little steps this society made. Mm -hmm. And I guess one of the first was Buffalo Soldiers. I mean, and it was uh, in Leavenworth's Buffalo Soldier Museum, which mm -hmm. I've done a podcast on. Edna and William are wonderful people up there. And that's a trip. If anybody wants that history, it's uh, it's an incredible story. But it is a step, a step out of slavery. But uh, what a tiny step! I mean, they received uh, poor equipment. They got the worst jobs. They were uh, officers were all white, including uh, John J. Pershing, 
who uh, led the Allies in World War One. He mm-hmm. was a second lieutenant with there. One thing that surprised me was they received thirteen dollars a month, the same pay as as the whites. So it's somebody in there wanted something, but they were still suppressed. Yet it happened. So is there a correlation between Buffalo Soldiers and uh, the Negro League? Oh yeah, and, and honestly, those stories, whether it is in sto- indeed the story of the Negro Leagues or the Buffalo Soldiers or the Tuskegee Airmen, in essence, they're all the same story. They're all the same I've story. Done the Tuskegee Airmen. Yeah, too. no, they're all the same Wonderful. story. It, it, they're the stories of what happens when opportunity is presented, and and, and how others have excelled against insurmountable odds. Mm-hmm. And that's something that we're so proud of, even as we look at this story. And Jackie Robinson, in essence, was a Buffalo soldier uh, serving at Fort Riley, uh, even though he's in the 1940s at that time. Mm -hmm. Jackie's enlisted in the Army in 1942 during World War II. What happens in 1942? The Kansas City Monarchs win the Negro League World Series. (laughs) the, The Monarchs win the Negro League World Series in 1942. Jackie's assigned to Fort Riley in Kansas, right up the road from the museum. Who else was at Fort Riley at that same time? Joe Lewis, the heavyweight boxing champion of the world. And quite frankly, at that time, Joe Lewis was to start because to be the heavyweight boxing champ of the world's fastest man, those were the two most prestigious sports titles that could be held in this country. And Fort Riley was not admitting blacks into his officer school program even though they had the qualifications. And so Jackie and several other black enlistees had more than enough qualifications to be accepted into the program, but just simply were denied because of the color of the skin. Well, Joe Lewis and others protested. If you may recall, Joe had been doing exhibition prize fights to raise money for the military. And he calls in a favor. And that's how Jackie Robinson gets into officer school training there at Fort Riley. When he completes his training, he is reassigned to now what would be called Fort Hood in Texas. Mm -hmm. And it was there that he would be court-martialed from the U.S. Army for refusing to give up his seat to a white person on the bus. Jackie wins his court-martial trial. That's when he writes to Kansas City Monarchs owner James Leslie Wilkinson and asks for a tryout with the Monarchs. The great Hilton Smith. Mm -hmm. Hilton Smith, one of the greatest pitchers of all time, and again, a name that most fans have likely never heard of. He was nicknamed Satchel Shadow because Satchel would pitch the first three innings. Hilton Smith would usually come in and pitch the next six. And all the old-timers say, if you were going to get anything, you better get it off of Satchel because you're not going to touch Hilton Smith. (laughs) And and Buck O'Neill says the greatest curveball he ever saw. Monty Irvin says his curveball was so good that you could know it was coming mm. and the break on it was still too sh- too sharp. You couldn't hit it. And he threw the big 12 or 6 breaker and he threw what he called a tight curveball where he would drop down about three quarters. A today slider? we call it a slider. Yeah, today we would call it a slider. Well, Hilton had already seen Jackie playing military baseball and had already recommended him to James Leslie Wilkinson, the Monarch's owner. Well, when, when Jackie is honorably discharged from the U.S. Army, that's when he writes to Wilkie, asks for a tryout. They try him out in Houston, Texas. Mm-hmm. He makes the team. And as I say on my own podcast, 
Little did Wilkie know he had just signed a man that was about to put him out of business. Yeah. Yeah. Five months later, Jackie was gone. And just so you, how big black baseball was to the black economy. Oh, absolutely. And when that happened, what was it, the third largest business in the yes. United States? Yeah, third largest black home. And it's not only the business, but as we had talked about earlier, the social implications. Mm-hmm. Society for for African Americans, I mean, that was their, uh, it's where you went after church. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, and, and honestly, I'm not sure that black folks realized what we were losing when we lost the Negro Leagues. Because it was certainly one of, if not the primary catalyst that sparked economic development in so many African-American communities. So essentially, wherever you had successful black baseball, you typically had thriving black economies. And the Negro Leagues were bringing those, as I described them, those segregated, mandated black-owned businesses. Because what segregation did do, as ugly and as sorrowful a chapter in American history as segregation was, what segregation did do was it forced ownership. You had to have your own. And Negro Leagues Baseball was bringing those black-owned businesses a built-in clientele mm-hmm. that led those black-owned businesses to their economic heights. And so it wasn't uncommon that these athletes could ride into a town, fill up the ballpark, but yet not be able to get a meal mm-hmm. from the same fans who had just cheered them. So they would sleep on the bus and eat their peanut butter and crackers until they could get to a place that would offer them basic services. Well, here in Kansas City, for example, businesses like the Street Hotel, the Black-owned hotel that used to be right on the corner of 18th and Vassal, where Suarez Restaurant is today, but those businesses emerged to meet need. Negro Leagues Baseball was bringing them a built-in clientele that again led those businesses to their economic heights. And that's why I say if there's a bittersweet aspect to the overall story of the Negro Leagues, it lies in the fact that you can directly parallel the rise and fall of the Negro Leagues with the rise and fall of black economy. And to a great extent, black economy never recovered from losing the Negro Leagues. So what was good morally, what was good socially, was absolutely devastating economically. Unbelievable. Yeah, no, I tell my guests all the time, there is always a cost for progress. Always. Mm -hmm. Today it is more technological in nature, but with each technological advancement, what happens? Someone loses their job. But this was good for the soul of our country. It moved us in ways, and I speak integration, it moved us in ways socially we never dreamt even possible, but it absolutely came at a cost. The barnstorming was incredible to read about. I mean, they were in North Dakota one day and they were in Denver the next. I mean, it was, they were driving 40, 50,000 miles a year in these buses. And, uh, boy, you'd hit a town and that town would uh, 
Oh, they're, they're here. Oh, my gosh. Let's go to the ballpark. But I also did, I also have done several podcasts on women mm-hmm. and women that really change things. Yes. I mean, Osa Johnson, uh, Amelia Earhart, Coco Chanel, Margaret yes. Sanger. I want to bring up Effa Manley. I want you to tell me a story about Effa, who I think doesn't get her due uh, because she was a woman in a man's world. Oh, absolutely. Well respected and kind of as was at odds with uh, Wilkie over Satchel for uh, for a contract, correct? And, and she was also at odds with Branch Rickey. And Effa Manley... Compensation. Absolutely. Effa Manley is the first woman to be nominated and inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown. And she is a complicated figure. She was she is an interesting character study in her own right. And contrary to popular belief, Branch Rickey did not sign Jackie Robinson to a contract in the Dodgers organization. He took Jackie Robinson away from the Kansas City Monarchs. Correct. Kansas City Monarchs owner James Leslie Wilkinson Never got paid for Jackie Robinson. Or as my late mother would say, he didn't get one red cent for a player who was absolutely under contract. But Ricky's first choice was the great Monty Irvin. Mm -hmm. Monty Irvin had been playing for Effa Manley's Newark Eagles. And Monty had just gotten back from World War II, where he was admittedly suffering from what he called then shell shock. Mm -hmm. Today we call it post-traumatic syndrome. Uh huh. But the primary reason that Monty Irvin wasn't the first is because Effa Manley blocked it. And as I oftentimes tell the story, to say that Effa Manley couldn't stand Branch Rickey, that might be an understatement. She didn't care for Branch Rickey, and and honestly, rightfully so, because what she saw and it was very apparent to her what Branch Rickey's real intent was. Branch Rickey's had planned to come into the Negro Leagues and raid it of his star talent. Cherry pick. Uh-huh, without compensation to the league's owners. Mm-hmm. And she wasn't having it. And that changed because uh-huh. it did happen. Yeah. Not only Branch Rickey, but others may not have gotten fairly compensated, but, but they, they got, got compensated. compensated. And, and she was prepared to litigate against Rickey. And, and Rickey knew that he could not risk going to court over this effort to try and bring a black player in with this public fight against this black woman. Although it is controversial over whether or not she was black or white. There are some who believe that she was biracial, that her mother was white, that her father was black. There are others who believe that she was the byproduct of an affair that her mother had with a white man. But regardless, she could have passed for white. She was raised by a black man. Uh-huh. And she assimilated to, to black culture at a time when it wasn't very popular being black. But she was also savvy enough to use her whiteness, which allowed her to stay in places that other black folks couldn't stay and shop in places that other black folks couldn't shop. But then on the other side of the token, she would hold anti-lynching days at her ballpark in Newark. 
And she orchestrated the Don't Buy Where You Can't Work movement, which opened up clerk opportunities for a lot of black folks there in the Newark, Newark area. So she's a complicated figure. But Ricky knew he couldn't afford to have this fight, a public fight, over this effort to try and bring a black man into the major leagues. Because so he's thinking also, here come the black fan. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And so he backs off of Monty Irvin. That's when he turns his sight here to Kansas City and one Jackie Roosevelt Robinson, who had just joined Kansas City Monarchs. And here's how shrewd Ricky was, and this is certainly my theory, that he knew that the Monarchs' owner couldn't fight back. You know why? He was white. He was white. There you have it. He was white. And there is no way that this white man who made his entire living in black baseball can be the public face of trying to block what every black person in America had been waiting for for a black man to finally play in the major leagues. And I think Ricky knew this. He had Wilkie between that proverbial rock and hard place. Even though Wilkie was a wonderful man that, that held up to all sorts of contracts and even more, lent money to his players. And there's reports that he even lent money to people that weren't under contract to him who played baseball. Yes. And no, I'm, no. I'm wondering how he... Made any money. Well, yeah, yeah, no. And, and so Ricky knew Wilkie couldn't fight back. And so publicly, Wilkie said all the right things because he has to protect his business interests. Mm -hmm. Privately, he is seething. And he's not seething because a black man's about to play in the major leagues, but this black man that you're about to take away from me, you're going to put me out of business. And he was absolutely right. He would sell his interests in the Monarchs to his business partner, T.Y. Baird, Baird uh -huh, Tom Baird, in 1948, the year after Jackie breaks the color barrier, because the question is not if the Negro Leagues are going to fold, but rather when they are going to fold. And he got out of the business of black baseball before it completely collapsed. Now, when Bill Vett comes to get Larry Doby from Effa Manley, he came at least offering a sum of money. Seemed like Bill Vett was, I mean, what a character. But uh, people say the, the, the best publicity man was Vett, uh, uh, Wilkie, and Satchel. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so Vett had a heart for this. He did. And he came at least offering a sum of money, $5,000, and Mrs. Manley, who had by this time realizes that I'm not going to be able to keep fighting these guys off. Mm -hmm. There's blood in the water, and the sharks are coming. So at this juncture, she says to Bill Vec through a letter, Now, Mr. Vec, you know if Larry Doby was white, he would be worth $100,000 or more. But if you think this $5,000... Some is fair. I guess I'm in no place now where I can dispute this. And Vec, as you mentioned, who did have a heart for this, he <laughs> he gives her an additional five thousand dollars, 
and Larry Doby a $5,000 bonus if he made the team. So essentially $15,000 for a future Hall of Famer. And that was the case for the other players who were transitioning. Those Negro League owners literally created a fire sale, develop and sell as quickly as I can and try to get a little bit before the business of black baseball dies. But Major League Baseball, they were getting these future Hall of Famers for pennies on the dollar, man. Incredible time. I mean, it's just, you know, these small steps in society keep on coming back. But it, it's like a half step. That's not even a full step. <laughs> I'm sitting here looking in 1936. Black players found respect, freedom, and democracy in Mexico. In Mexico. What, yeah. a, what a poster that is. Yeah, no, it, it so beautifully frames the context. You had to go abroad to find basic liberty. And a lot of the uh, the winter leagues were played in Puerto Rico, Puerto Cuba. Rico, Cuba, Mexico. So many yeah, now Monty Irvin, who I got to know, uh, and I've been blessed, man. I got to know both Buck O'Neill and Monty Irvin, two of the finest human beings that ever walked the face of this earth, who just happened to be great baseball players. And he said he never felt more freer in his life than he went to Mexico for the very first time to play baseball. He said, I felt like my natural self. I could go anywhere that I could afford to go. And, and that was generally the case. These players and Negro League players were oftentimes the first Americans to play in many Spanish-speaking countries. And when we went to those countries, we were treated like heroes. So you're going to stay in the finest hotels, eat in the finest restaurants that those countries would have to offer, and then you come back home, and of course you're treated like a second-class citizen. And really, that was part of the reason that you saw a number of Negro League players who would call those Spanish-speaking countries home because for one simple reason. In those countries, we weren't black baseball players. Mm -hmm. We were just baseball players. And that's all they ever wanted to be. And, and so Buck O'Neill talks about going to Havana when Havana was Havana. Mm -hmm. And how much he adored being there and how the fans and the adulation that came along now he had the same challenges that the Spanish-speaking athlete has coming to this country to this day, the language barrier. And he said initially he didn't speak Spanish at all, but he became quite fluent in Spanish. But when he first goes down, he, he didn't know how to order off the menu, so he would walk into the restaurant and would make this kind of waving motion with his hand, and they knew he wanted fish. <laughs> so, uh -huh. so he ate a lot of fish and maybe that's part of the reason that he lived such a long life he made it to 94 man and so but now the acceptance that was there in those other countries was just amazing and that is what we had so diligently was striving for here in this country and it was just very difficult for that to transpire. Well, and um, how slow it came. And how slow change came. But the Latin players, I mean, they're, they've almost taken over, really. Uh, each team is more than half uh, Latin players these yeah. days. Yeah, no, the number of Spanish-speaking athletes continue to grow in Major League Baseball. And from a, I guess, a theory standpoint, what do all of those countries have in common? They good all weather. have good weather. 
and they all have their own league still. Every one of those countries have a professional baseball league. Mm -hmm. And so baseball has been successful in going to those countries and bringing a handful of them out of the, their leagues. But a child sees them, and all those guys always go back home to play for their country. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, and, that, that was so big and, and just I, this last yeah, two months it, ago. For the WBC. Yeah. And it has a tremendous influence in keeping kids excited about playing this game. Because you see it at a professional level in your homeland, and then you're seeing select few make it out of your homeland to go play in the major leagues. And we, when we lost the Negro Leagues, we lost the Negro Leagues. It wasn't just the players that left. The, the entire league structure fell apart. And, and so baseball has slowly started to become detached you lost your hero. Yeah, you lost your heroes. I mean, they say all the white boys wanted to be Yankees, and all the black black boys wanted to be Marlins. Yeah, now it was looked at in the same reverence. Yeah, it meant the same, and you didn't have that. You saw them now playing in the major leagues, but you didn't have that league that was continually driving talented athletes into it like you did when you had the Negro leagues in tow. And so it's just part of the reason why I think we've seen such a tremendous decline in participation at the African-American level. In uh, earlier times, how important, not just here in Kansas City, but in, in other cities where there uh, were teams, was the Kansas City call? Oh, the Kansas City call was tremendously important, just as it was for the Chicago Defender and the Amsterdam News and the Pittsburgh Courier, they, those African-American papers, were the voice of the Negro Leagues. And if it's not for them, we would have very little documentation on the Negro Leagues themselves. And so those black, great black papers were a vital part of this story. Promotion and... And the recording of and history. The, and the record. Absolutely. And the real reason that Rube Foster established the Negro Leagues was was really because the black press was pushing that agenda. They were pushing for an organized structure that could be mirrored right after Major League Baseball. And then it would become the same black press that would ultimately push for the integration of our game. Mm. Um, they were setting up and staging tryouts for black players with Major League teams. And, and so the black press was both instrumental and the formation of the Negro Leagues, and then also instrumental in the demise. the demise of the Negro Leagues, which is a, an entire another story um, in terms of how we view progress. Yes, that's the proverbial two steps back, one step forward. Uh huh. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I can't tell you, we could go on. <laughs> I can't tell you how privileged I feel that I'm here. I hope you know, as you progress through your career, you are becoming the man. Right. So we're sitting here yeah, uh, along with uh, yeah, Buck O'Neill and other people. Yeah, he's, looking over, he's looking over my shoulder. He's looking over your shoulder. <laughs> but your demeanor and your wonderful personality is uh, leading the way and leading the way to bringing people to this uh, fabulous museum. Uh, one more thing I wanted to ask you. Give me some reaction of famous baseball players that we all may know 
when they have come here, anybody jump out at you of their didn't understand, didn't know? Well, I think, is any... I think that's the prevailing thought right there where at that latter stage, man, I didn't know. And, and again, it's no fault of your own. Because as my late mother would say, you don't know what you don't know. But now you have an opportunity to know. Mm -hmm. But that is what you hear. It's almost universal, not I just from the know. players, but from the just the visitors who come to see us. This is an awakening. <laughs> it is an awakening because for virtually everyone who encounters this, this history, it's a brand new history. Because we didn't have a chance to learn this when we were in school. It's not in the pages of American history books. So, again, countless generations of us have gone through all our own formal educations without knowing one of the most significant chapters, not in baseball history, but in American, American history. history. And, and so, almost to a player, when they walk through there, they're fascinated. They're blown away by just the sheer love of the game that these players have. Because you had to love it. Yeah, you had to love it to endure what they had to endure. And I do think that passion that they had, it resonates with this player today, this current crop of major leaguers who have been the benefactors of the sacrifice created by these players who, as Buck O'Neill was like to say, we built the bridge. Uh, we built the bridge across that chasm of prejudice. And then others crossed over that bridge. But you see, it is so rare in our society that we ever celebrate the bridge builders. Well, we always sell, yeah, we always celebrate the people who cross over the bridge. These people are meeting people that they're standing on their shoulders exactly. for the first time. Exactly. exactly. They wonder how they got there and how they get this wonderful opportunity. Yep. They've been blessed. Well, now here's how you were blessed. Well, and I, I'll never forget my good friend Ozzie Smith, the Wizard, Hall of Famer. When he was here for the grand opening in 1997, November of 1997, and he walks out on the field of legends downstairs, and he said it was one of the most eeriest feelings that he ever had in his life because you could feel their spirits. And for him, he understood that he had stood on the shoulders of these immortal athletes to pursue his opportunity to play in the major leagues and become the wizard and become a future Hall of Famer. And he was literally moved to tears. And so for the black and Hispanic athlete, this is their mecca. These are your roots. You don't play this game had it not been for the sacrifice of those who call the Negro Leagues home. But for me, it doesn't really matter what color you are. The one thing that drives and unites us as it relates to this story, love of the game. And you will never see a greater example of love of the game than you do when you walk through the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. And man, they embrace that. They do. And of course, just the mega talent that these stars of the Negro Leagues brought to the table and and I get to share those stories with them and it never gets old. I never grow tired of telling the stories and walking those young athletes through the museum and seeing their reaction to the history and 
And I think their understanding and appreciation for what others had to do in order to play this game. And in doing so, I think it gives them a better appreciation for what they have. Not only them and their appreciation, but they pass it on. Then they pass it on. They absolutely do. Because early on, it would be me calling the teams, trying to convince them to come and see the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. And now they're calling you. Now they're calling me. And man, it just makes me feel so good that they are now reaching out to me wanting to see the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum because their peers are telling them, hey man, if you get time while you're in Kansas City, you should go by the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum and it's a beautiful thing. No, it should be, you need to go to the museum and then, oh, by the way, we're playing that night. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, well, uh, lastly, I'd like you to, uh, if you'd like, say something about your podcast. Yeah, no, I do a podcast called Black Diamonds that I'm honored to uh, join my friends over at Sirius XM Radio. This is the third year of this national podcast. And man, I tell you what, it has far exceeded any expectations that I may have had. Because number one, when they initially approached me about doing this podcast, I'm saying to myself, Bob, you don't have enough time to do anyone's podcast. Now, I had interviewed on virtually everyone's podcast, but I certainly never dreamt about having my own podcast. But the more I thought about what they they had put on the table, the more sense it made, because they are giving the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum a national international platform to tell our story. And so (laughs) I signed up for this now in our third year. Uh, In year one, it was named the National Sports Podcast of the Year by Ad Week. And you don't do these things, you know, for an award. You do this because you feel like you've got something that other people will want to connect with. And the level of engagement around this podcast, we are essentially building a new generation of fans who are falling in love with the Negro Leagues through this crazy podcast called Black Diamonds. It is available anywhere that you get your podcast: Spotify, Apple, uh, through the Sirius app, iHeart, anywhere that you get your podcast. So, yeah, please check me out. All right. Well, this is a destination. I can't thank you how much I've enjoyed this. But this is Bob Ford of History, Mystery, and Lore, along with... Bob Kendrick, president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. And we are keeping history alive so you will pass it on. Thank you, Bob. Bob, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. If you enjoy these episodes and know others who would also, please subscribe, gift a subscription to a fellow history buff, and share us so others know we're out there. For as little as $3 a month, go to bobfordshistory.com. You will receive a new episode on the 1st and 15th of each month, bonus articles written by guest writers, and history trivia at the end of each month. There's even a few free teaser episodes at bobfordshistory.com. We've got 40 more of these interviews already in the can. So please join us and help keep history alive so you and yours can pass it on. Thank you.